All right, this is probably going to be the last message in Ezekiel. I say that because I think it will be, unless the Lord gives me another one between now and two weeks from tonight. So if you have your outline handy there, I want to just kind of go back over, in case you weren't here with us last week, go back over so you can fill in the blanks there in point one and two, and I'll give you the other points, three and four tonight. Uh, Point number one is Christ will reign from Jerusalem. And the title of the message, of course, is The Millennial Reign of Christ. And the Lord led me to this subject because I believe this entire section in Ezekiel from chapter 40 to the end of the book is describing the temple that will be built during the millennial reign of Christ on the earth, that 1,000-year reign. And so because this uh, passage, uh, these chapters... Uh, God's Holy Spirit inspired Ezekiel to write so much about this uh, temple that there has to be a lot important about it. And so I believe that this is what is uh, the background here for it. So I believe this is what uh, uh, will happen here during the millennial reign of Christ on the earth. So Christ will reign from Jerusalem. There will be a temple there. There will be a throne there. He will reign. He is the supreme ruler over all the earth during the millennium. Uh, physically here on earth, and then under his leadership will be David, who will have been uh, resurrected by then, and he will be sitting also on a throne, and he is called the prince in the book of Ezekiel, the prince, uh, in the, especially in the latter part of the book of Ezekiel. And uh, so he will be reigning, uh, Jesus will, from the temple during the millennium and that thousand-year period of time that is described for us uh, uh, in part in Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 6. So that's point number one in your outline. Point number two is portions of the land will be distributed among 12 tribes. And those 12 tribes of uh, the sons of Jacob, uh, excluding the uh, Levites, because the Levites did not have a portion of land like the other tribes did. As we talked about last week, God told the Levites, I am your inheritance. Uh, They did have some land to live on that was near Jerusalem, um, uh, but they did not have the same kind of land that the other tribes had. And so if you take Levi out, that just leaves you 11 tribes. And so to make the 12th one, instead of Joseph being included in the 12, his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, were given plots of land. So that's how you come up with the 12 tribes of land. And you've got the scripture references there. And uh, we will just leave it at that because we talked about that last week. And by the way, if uh, you want to, uh, if you missed a Wednesday night and want to go back and listen to them, they are on our website. If you'll go to bellevue.org slash media and go to Wednesday night or chapel service, uh, they, they are all on there. And so if you want to check them out, you can do that. All right, now then, point number three is this. The land will be renewed and refreshed. The land will be renewed and refreshed, and we look for that point uh, in chapter 47. So please uh, open your Bible, if you're not already, to chapter 47, and that's where we'll pick up the reading of the Word of God. Uh, Then he brought me, and this is, of course, Ezekiel speaking, Uh, about uh, the angel who is giving him a tour of uh, the city, uh, mostly the temple. He brought me to the door of the temple, 
And there was water flowing from under the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the front of the temple faced east. The water was flowing from underneath the right side of the temple, south of the altar. He brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around on the outside to the outer gateway that faces east. And there was water running out on the right side. And when the man went out to the east with the line in his hand, he measured 1,000 cubits, and that's approximately 1,500 feet, uh, give or take, it's about a quarter of a mile. And he brought me through the cubit, uh, through the waters, and the water came up to my ankles. Again, he measured 1,000 and brought me through the waters, and the water came up to my knees. And again, he measured 1,000 and brought me through. The water came up to my waist. It's like the old Johnny Cash song. How high is the water, Daddy? It's a three feet high and rising. This water keeps on rising. The, the further they walk out into the water, his ankles and his knees and now his waist. And again, he measured uh, the uh, 1,000. This is verse 5. And it was a river that I could not cross for the water was too deep. Water in which one must swim a river that could not be crossed. That is, you couldn't walk across it. If you're going to cross the river, you'd have to swim across it. So here is, uh, here is this wonderful scene that uh, Ezekiel participates in, in this vision, where the angel takes him on this trip, uh, and uh, the water that's coming out of the altar, which is uh, in the, th in the uh, temple there, the altar that's in the temple, that's where the power is coming from. That's where the water is coming from. So it's come, it comes out from under the altar, and it's going to the south, and uh, it is going headed toward the east then, headed toward the sea. And the sea that is east of the temple, and it's east of Jerusalem, is, of course, the Dead Sea. So here is Ezekiel, and here is this angel who are walking in the water, and the further they get in the water, the deeper the water gets. I believe this is a picture of the life of a Christian. We ought to continue to walk deeper with the Lord. The water is a picture of the Spirit of God flowing, and you and I, as, as uh, members of the body of Christ, as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, we ought not be satisfied to stay in the shallow water. We ought to want to get on out there in the deep water where, the, uh, where the, you can learn the deep truths of God. You can grow in Him. You can walk with Him. And it's like Jesus said in John chapter 7, when He stood up on that last great day of the feast, the Feast of the Tabernacles, and He said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And if he does, for out of his belly will flow rivers of living water. And John then described it. He said, this He spoke of the Holy Spirit who had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. But now, of course, Jesus has been glorified, so the Spirit of God is in us, and the Spirit of God is to flow through us so that we might be a blessing to other people. And here is a picture, I believe, of the Spirit of God as Ezekiel is walking with the Spirit. The Spirit is all around him, and uh, the, the more he walks, the deeper the water gets. That is a picture of his going deeper in the Word of God. And because of that, you and I can see the need for, for us to continue to walk with God and to continue 
uh, to walk in that life-giving flow of the Spirit of God. Now, the water that flows out from the temple, from under the uh, altar, eventually goes to the Dead Sea. And uh, if you ever wondered why the Dead Sea is called the Dead Sea, it's because the Dead Sea is dead. There's nothing that's alive in the Dead Sea. If you've ever been to Israel and seen the Dead Sea, uh, it's really a sight to behold. It's the lowest point uh, on the earth, uh, lowest point of sea level on the earth. And uh, it is dry. It is desert-like around it. And the water that flows down from the north, uh, from uh, uh, the uh, mountains in the north part of Israel, and flows down to the Sea of Galilee and out of the Sea of Galilee, the Jordan River, which flows directly then into the Dead Sea, but the Dead Sea does not have an outlet, so the water just stays there, and it is so arid there that the water eventually evaporates, but there's, of course, more. It's always being fed by the Jordan, but because the water stops there, it's stagnant, it's dead, it's full of minerals. Uh, you can float in it without even having a floaty, uh, and, uh, but you don't want to taste it. Take my word on that one. Take my word on that one. Becky and I were over there several years ago with Brother Steve and Donna and the group that went from Bellevue, and we got out there one day. It was in January. It was cold, but you're at the Dead Sea. It's just like being baptized in the Jordan. It was January. It was cold, but you get a chance to get baptized in the Jordan, you're going to take it. And so you go to the Dead Sea. You get a chance to float around in the Dead Sea. You got to do it. And so we're out there in the Dead Sea. We're trying not to do much splashing and stuff uh, because we'd been told how bitter the water is. Uh, but uh, accidentally, some of it got in my mouth, and I had to accidentally spit it out. You know, so it was it was just uh, really unpleasant and bitter. But there's a coming a time when that water is going to be renewed. It's going to be refreshed. It's going to bring life with it. That water flowing from the altar of God is a picture of the life of God flowing into a place that's dead. And it is the Spirit of God that gives, gives life to dead stuff. And this dead sea is going to become alive, uh, so much alive, in fact, that there's going to be fishermen lined up on the banks of the dead sea, fishing uh, and pulling out all the fish they can from the dead sea. And the scripture here says in this same passage that uh, there's going to be as many fish in the dead sea and, di and different kinds of fish in the Dead Sea as there are in the Great Sea, the Mediterranean Sea. So it's going to be overflowing with fish, and, and the, the, the sea that was once dead and has been dead for centuries is going to come alive by the power and Spirit of God during the time of the millennial reign of Christ. And that is an example of what's going to happen all throughout this earth, because the earth will be refreshed, the earth will be renewed. Remember that the, the earth has just gone through seven years of tribulation and uh, the last three and a half called the Great Tribulation. And as you remember from your study in, in the book of Revelation, uh, that uh, the earth has just, it's been almost destroyed because of all of the uh, earthquakes and, and uh, the other things that happened to the earth during that period. So the earth needs to be refreshed. It needs to be renewed. And it's going to be during the time of the millennium. And in fact, I want you to turn back with me uh, to some uh, other passages in the Old Testament that will testify about what's going to happen during the millennial reign of Christ. And we begin at Psalm 2. I think you've got that in your reference, uh, in your outline there tonight. We're going to begin at verse uh, 6 of Psalm 2. Uh, this will speak some 
of the land being refreshed, but mostly about Jesus reigning here in Jerusalem during the millennium. And look at verse 6. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. And he is speaking here. This is called a messianic psalm, which speaks of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it speaks of a time in the future. When the Lord Jesus came, he came, of course. He was born as a king. He lived as a king. He reigned as a king. But he did not sit on the throne of Israel as the king on a throne in Jerusalem during his time here on the earth. But there's coming a time when he will. Because we read here in this passage uh, that he says, I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. Well, this is speaking of the time when Jesus will reign from Zion in Jerusalem. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. Jesus is going to reign. He's the supreme ruler. He will reign during the millennial with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, that just simply means that Jesus is in charge during the millennium. And when people sin, and, and people will sin during the millennium, when they sin, when nations sin, when people sin, they will be judged by the righteous judge. And he will... Uh, he will mete out whatever punishment is appropriate for them. He says, you shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. And now let's turn uh, to the book of Isaiah, because Isaiah in many places uh, tells us uh, about the uh, millennial reign of Christ. But in chapter 2, it tells us uh, some uh, beautiful truths here that I want to uh, read with you. Uh, is, uh, Isaiah chapter 2, starting to read at verse 3, reading verses 3 and 4. And uh, this speaks of, um, of uh, nations uh, coming to worship and uh, the peace that they want to have. Uh, Isaiah chapter 2 and verse 3. Many people shall come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up a sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. So this is the time of peace. During the millennial reign of Christ, he is, he is ruling, he is reigning, and nations will come before him, and they will come in peace because they are recognizing uh, the, uh, the kingship of Jesus. They're recognizing the lordship of Jesus. Uh, it doesn't mean that all nations, of course, are saved. It means, though, that they will give an account of their nation uh, before the Lord, and Jesus also talked about that uh, in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, chapter 25. He's speaking about nations that come before him, and uh, he will rule either in favor of them or against them based on uh, what the rules are for that judgment. So, But there are going to be many people during the millennium who will say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, and the Lord, the house of the God of Jacob, he will teach us his ways 
and we'll walk in his path. So there's going to be a desire to follow after the Lord in that day during the millennial reign of Christ. Now then, let's look at uh, chapter 11 of, of Isaiah. Chapter 11 of Isaiah. And this is where uh, we read about the change in the world concerning the animal kingdom. Look with me at uh, verse 5 of Isaiah chapter 11. The Bible says here, Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins, that speaks of Jesus, and faithfulness the belt of his waist. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now, won't that be a beautiful thing to see? Look at all these uh, animals that right now, uh, one is dangerous to the other. You've got the wolf who will lie down or dwell with the lamb. Now, we've heard a lot of times over the years, the, the lion will lay down with the lamb or lie down with the lamb. But actually, the scripture here says the wolf will dwell with the lamb. But the lion is involved here as well. So, you know, in our day and time, if a lamb were to lie down with a lion, the lion would say, all right, lunch has arrived. Because, uh, you know, lambs are, are wolf food. And what about the leopard? The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. Now, normally, a goat would be afraid of a leopard because a leopard would tear a goat apart and wouldn't even have to barbecue it, you know, just enjoy it like it was. I've heard of people eating barbecue goat. Has anybody here eaten any barbecue goat in your life? Anybody? Okay, okay, some folks have. And how was it? Terrible. Terrible. <laughs> well, see, that's one more reason I don't ever want to eat any, you know. But a goat doesn't want to be anywhere around a hungry leopard for obvious reasons. And um, what about a calf and a young lion, a hungry young lion? Well, a calf is always running away from a lion. You know, if you've not been to Africa to see it, you've seen it on National Geographic or on some TV show where lions are running after uh, these uh, whatever kind of animals may, they may be in, in pursuit of. And uh, these animals don't hang around and say, I think I'll try to negotiate peace uh, with this lion. No, they, they run for their lives because they know if they're caught by the lion that their life is over. But in the millennium, that's not going to be the case. And then look um, uh, one, once again, the, um, a, a little child shall lead them. Now, we keep our little children away from dangerous animals, but during the millennium, 
Animals are not going to be a danger to any children or adults either for that matter. And then look again, more of the same, but let's just read it again. The cow and the bear shall graze. Now, a bear usually likes to graze on a cow, but, but in the millennial, he'll graze in the field. Their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. A nursing child shall play by a cobra's hole, a little baby crawling around in the dirt near the hole, the den of a viper, a snake, a cobra, without any fear of being bitten. The weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. It's obvious right now that the earth is not full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea because we still see all this stuff that I've just described where, where there are predators and there is prey and one eats the other. And so, but one of these days, it's going to be the case where the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. It's going to be glorious to be there and see that because those of us who know the Lord, we will have been with the Lord during that seven-year period of the marriage supper of the Lamb. We'll come back with Him at His second coming. We'll be here during that time of the millennium. And so we can, wherever we are, we can just walk outside Say, well, here comes a leopard. Come over here, lep, and uh, let me pet you for a while, you know? And here is, uh, here's Leo the lion. Hey, Leo, hadn't seen you in a long time. I don't care if you're hungry. Come on over. I'll, we're, we're best buddies now. So, you know, that's, it's going to be just beautiful and wonderful, and it's going to be a great time to be on the earth, uh, even though that's still... The old earth, the present earth we're living on now being renewed and refreshed, it will eventually uh, go away and we'll have a new heaven and a new earth. But this is one of the great blessings that will happen during uh, the millennial reign of Christ. And so let me move on now to point number four. And let's look at uh, uh, Ezekiel chapter 38 and verse... 35. Ezekiel 38, 48, 48, and verse 35. After Ezekiel has had this tour of uh, the temple, the courtyard, and the gates, and uh, the city, here's how the book of Ezekiel ends. A great climax. All the way around shall be 18,000 cubits. And the name of the city from that day shall be the Lord is there. That is, the Lord will manifest his presence in a way that will be so magnificent that everyone will recognize that the Lord has focused his attention on the city of Jerusalem, the Lord is there. And that will be such a glorious time. You know, the Lord's here now. We all know that. He is uh, omnipresent. 
He is here and he's also in every other place in the world. But there's going to be a special manifestation of his presence in the city of Jerusalem and throughout the world during the time of the millennial reign of Christ. Now, as you may know, that word or that phrase, the Lord is there, is one of the covenant names of God. And I want to share those with you tonight. I know many of you know these, but in case uh, you've never had an opportunity to write them down, I I would like for you to do that if you would like to, because these names of God will bless your heart. They will give you more insight into the character of God. So Jehovah Shema, but I'll, I'll, I'll bring that one back later in just a moment. Let me give you, and I'll give you the scripture references for these as well, so that you'll have those side by side. There's at least eight that we are customarily familiar with, and I'll give you those eight to start off with. Jehovah Jireh uh, is the first one in Genesis chapter 22 and verse 14. And this is uh, the Lord will provide. It's when God provided a ram in the place of Abraham's son, Isaac, that he offered as a sacrifice. And God said, don't actually kill him. But he substituted a ram instead of him. So the Lord will provide. How many of you believe the Lord still provides? He does. He is still Jehovah Jireh. The second name is Jehovah Rapha. And that's spelled R-A-P-H-A, Jehovah Rapha. And this one is found in Exodus chapter 15 and verse 26. Exodus 15, verse 26. And this says, this is God speaking, I am the Lord who heals you. He was speaking to the Israelites just after they had come out of Egypt. And uh, he said, if you obey me, if you keep my commandments, I will put none of those diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians. For I am the Lord who heals you. I am Jehovah Rapha the Lord who heals you. It occurred to me uh, during COVID, actually, it occurred to me during COVID that when God said this to his people, he said, if you obey me, I will put none of those diseases on you. So I've been praying and trusting God that as we claim his name, Jehovah Rapha, he said, I will put none of those diseases on you. So I've been praying that God would keep us well and keep us from getting sick. Now, that doesn't mean that if you got sick, you're not trusting God. I don't mean that at all. But I'm just saying this is a a part, I believe, of the privilege that we have of the Lord to pray according to His name. And the promises that He made in the Old Testament certainly are magnified for us because all the promises of God are in Christ Jesus, yes and amen, according to 1 Corinthians. And so we have Jehovah Rapha. The next one is Jehovah Nisi, that's N-I-S-S-I, Jehovah Nisi, and that's in Exodus chapter 17 and verse 15. That means the Lord is our banner. He fights for us while we remain silent. And then the next one is Jehovah Shalom, which is S-H-A-L-O-M, which is the Hebrew word for peace. And that is found in Judges chapter 6 and verse 24. The next one is Jehovah Rohi, and that's spelled R-O-H-I, and that's the 23rd Psalm. When David wrote Psalm 23, the first verse says, the Lord is my shepherd. Literally what it says 
in the original language is Jehovah-Rohi. The Lord is my shepherd. Therefore, I shall not want. Now, the next one is Jehovah-Sidkenu, and let me spell that for you because it doesn't spell like it sounds. It starts with a T, T-S-I-D-K-E-N-U. Jehovah Sidkenu. And that means the Lord is our righteousness. And that's Jeremiah chapter 23 and verse 6. The Lord is our righteousness. If you have any righteousness tonight other than self-righteousness, what you have is the righteousness of Christ. And that's because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. The next one is Jehovah Makedesh. And let me spell that for you as well. That's M apostrophe K A D D E S H. M apostrophe K A D D E S H. Jehovah Makedesh or Makedesh. And that is found in Leviticus chapter 20 and verse 8. And there the Lord says, I am the Lord who sanctifies you. This is the Lord, our sanctifier, or the one who makes us holy. That's what the word sanctify means. It means to, to be holy or to be made holy. And we only have holiness in Christ. So the next one then is Jehovah Shema, which is where we are in Ezekiel. Jehovah Shema, the Lord is there. And Shema is spelled S-H-A-M-M-A-H, Jehovah Shema. The Lord is there. And then I always like also to pray two additional names. And I pray these, uh, either the names, uh, these compound names of, of God, as I begin my prayer time, either these ten names or what I'm going to give you in the next two points, one of those as I begin my prayer time in the mornings. And so I, like, I also like to add these two to make it a ten. Uh, the next one is Milhena, Jehovah Milhena. Let me spell that for you. It's M-I-L-H-A-N-A-H. M-I-L-H-A-N-A-H. Jehovah Milhena. And that is the Lord, our warrior. The Lord is a man of war. And that means he fights for you. Exodus chapter 15 and verse 3. And then one of my very, very favorites is Jehovah Goel. That's G-O-E-L, Jehovah Goel. That's in Isaiah 49 and verse 26. Isaiah Goel means the Lord our Redeemer. He has redeemed us by his blood. Beautiful word. It means that Jesus came into this sinful world and redeemed us with his own blood. It was a word that was used in that day to describe someone who would go into a slave market to purchase a slave and bring that slave out of, the, out of slavery. That's what Jesus did for us. We were slaves to sin. Jesus 
came from the perfect environment of heaven into the sin-cursed world, came right into the slave market of sin where we were all held captive by our own sin. He purchased us with his blood. He delivered us out of the kingdom of darkness and delivered us into the kingdom of light. He bought us not with silver and gold, but with the precious blood of his own body in order that he might redeem us for himself to have a people who would be forever praising his name. And this is Jehovah Goel, the Lord, our Redeemer. So those, those names always bless me, and, and uh, I, I just wanted to pass them along to you tonight. Like I say, I know a lot of you are familiar with those, but it never hurts to go over them again, does it? All right, now then, letter B under point four is Jesus, the I am names of Jesus. And all of these are in the Gospel of John Seven times Jesus refers to himself in some way as the I am. And when he did that one time, the Jewish people who were against him, not all the Jewish people were against him, of course, but those who were against him took up stones to stone him because they knew that he was claiming to be God. That is the name that God revealed himself to Moses by at the burning bush. He said, I am who I am. And that, by the way, is what we translate as Jehovah. When we say Jehovah Sidkenu and Jehovah Rapha and all that, that is what God, how God revealed himself in Exodus chapter 3 to Moses. And so Jesus, when he claims to be the I am, is also claiming to be God. So those who say that Jesus never claimed to be God, he just came as a moral teacher and as an example for us, are wrong. They are dead wrong, and if they don't repent and turn to Christ, they're going to be eternally wrong. Because Jesus not only is the Son of God, he is God the Son. So these seven I am's in the Gospel of John are as follows. He said... In John chapter 6, I am the bread of life. They were, they were saying to him, Moses gave our ancestors bread in, uh, in the wilderness. What are you going to do for us? He said, I'm telling you the truth. It wasn't Moses that gave you that bread. I'm the one that gave you the bread because I am the bread of life. And he meant that we are to take him into our lives and be nourished spiritually with his bread, with his life. And uh, the next one is John chapter 9. He said, I am the light of the world. This is uh, after he healed a man who had been born blind. And uh, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not stumble in darkness. So follow Jesus. He is your light. Then in John chapter 10, he said, I am the door. I am the door of the sheep. And what he meant by that was that there is a sheep fold, that is a place where the sheep were kept at night to keep them safe from predators. And there's only one entrance into that sheep fold. And Jesus said, I am that entrance. I am that door into fellowship with other sheep, the door of salvation. And then he said, and right after that in John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. Jesus is our good shepherd. 
And he, he is David's greater shepherd. When David said, the Lord is my shepherd, he was speaking about the Lord Jesus. Jesus here says, I am the good shepherd. My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. He's our good shepherd. He wants us to follow him. So listen to his voice and follow him. And then in John chapter 11, he said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. This was after Lazarus had died. They sent word to Jesus. He waited for a while before he came. Martha went out when, he heard, when she heard he was there and said, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. Jesus said, listen, Martha, I am the resurrection. So if you believe in me, you are already raised. Now, it's going to happen in the future, but it's as good as it has already happened because I am the resurrection. To have Jesus in your life is to live life. It is a, to live a resurrected life. He said, I'm the resurrection and the life. And then in John chapter 14, verse 6, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There's only one way to get to the Father, and that's through Jesus. He said, when he said that, he eliminated every other possibility. People in our day want to say, well, you know, there's lots of different ways to get to heaven. You have your way. Somebody else has our way. As long as you're sincere, it doesn't matter what you believe. It does matter what you believe. There's only one way to heaven, and that is through the Lord Jesus Christ. If you could, or if anybody could go another way, then why did Jesus die? Why did he spill his blood? Why did he pour out his life's blood? Why did he go through the agony of the uh, trials, those mock trials that he went through, the scourging, the, those 39 lashes that they gave to him, putting the crown of thorns on his head, being nailed to that cross, dying on that cross? Why did he go to all of that if you could get to heaven some other way? If you could be good enough, if you could keep the Ten Commandments, if you could uh, do enough good deeds that would outweigh your bad deeds and get to heaven, you wouldn't need Jesus. But you can't do that. Neither can I, neither can anyone. That's why the death of Jesus and his resurrection is not just important. It is essential. It is the only way anyone can ever get to heaven. And he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then in uh, John chapter 15, he said, I am the true vine. And, he, and then he went on to say, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me will bear much fruit. And uh, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will, and it shall be done for you. And so Jesus here is speaking about our needing him. We need to abide in him, which is another picture of being filled with the Spirit that Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 5. And so those are the seven I am statements of Jesus, and, um, and I wanted to give you those. And then lastly, I want to give you, so I, won't, I don't have uh, necessarily all of the scripture references for these, but uh, the Holy Spirit's names or how he is referred to in the New Testament uh, are these, and there are seven of these as well. He is the convictor the one who convicts of sin. And uh, that uh, is found in John chapter 16. And then he is also the comforter. And that's found in John chapter 14. 
The word comforter there means strengthener. He is the one who gives you strength. Then also in John chapter 16, he is the teacher. I'm going away, Jesus said, but I'm not leaving you by yourselves. I will send another helper for you. He will lead you into all truth. He will take the things of mine and teach them to you. Then in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the Holy Spirit is referred to as the one who baptizes us. Paul said, by one spirit, you've all been baptized into one body. The baptism of the spirit happens when you get saved. It's putting you into the body of Christ. The word baptize means to immerse. When were you put into the body of Christ? When were you immersed into the body of Christ? It wasn't after you got saved. It was at the point of your salvation. He also is the one who seals us. Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says that we are sealed with or by the Holy Spirit. And that means that we're eternally secure. That's one of the many different pictures that we have in the Bible about once, once you're truly saved, you can never lose your salvation. Now, there are all, to, all the time people who, who at one time make some profession of faith and believe they're saved or act like they're saved, but later they deny it. I don't believe they're ever truly saved. I'm not their judge. I don't know their heart. But what, what my Bible teaches me is once you truly are saved, you can never lose your salvation. And so you're sealed in the Holy Spirit. And then also he is the filler, the one who fills you. Ephesians 5 verse 18. Do not be drunk with wine in which is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. And that is the command that the Scripture gives us for every believer. And so I trust that the names of God, the names of Jesus, the names of the Holy Spirit uh, will continue to be a blessing to you as they have been uh, to me for many, many years. Use them in your prayer time. Use them when you're just praising the Lord. Use them uh, in, in blessing other people, and God will bless you. All of us need to continue to learn uh, the things of God more through His Word, through walking with Him, and through a fellowship, praying for each other, and seeing God answer prayer in all the many ways that he does.